Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen and this week we will be looking at issue number 526, December 24th and 31st, 1994. £1.80. I can hear you gasp at the back, £1.80. That is justified because this is a double issue episode of the pod. I'm not going to do a two hour podcast because I'm not mad, but it might be a little bit longer than usual this week just because this really is a bumper issue. Um, It goes into detail, uh, we'll get to this in a moment, but it goes into detail about the year in metal that was 1994. Also, we get the albums of the year as well, which is um, really quite interesting. So personally, I've had a great time doing this podcast this year. I've had a really good time. I I spoke about this in the intro last week. This podcast came out of nothing, really. It came out of an idea that I had uh, last Christmas when we were all in lockdown. I was like, right, I've got some old cranks. What am I going to do with them? I know, one to make a podcast. (laughs) So so here I am, uh, 51 episodes of a podcast later. Uh, I've met loads of great people, had wonderful chats with people, and I really, really love doing this. It's been really fun. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to this. Um, Getting a little bit of nostalgia, you know, remembering... What was so great about getting Kerrang! every week because you just never knew what each week's issue was going to contain. You just had no clue what was going on, which bands were together. And I think it's really important to remember, um, I was making fun last week about the internet and how they were talking about the internet then. But we get all of our information now immediately. Anything happens, we know about it, you know, as it's happening, as it's breaking. Back then, the only real way to get information and get music news was through magazines, newspapers, uh, maybe MTV, if you were lucky enough to have parents that had Sky. Apart from that, there wasn't really any other way um, to get information, uh, you know, modern, like music information like they did in Kerrang. So I uh, just remember as a kid how important it was every single Wednesday. I mean, going to school with a Kerrang in my back pocket, I really didn't want to go to any lessons or listen in any lessons because I had a Kerrang and there was so much information that I, you know, I needed to soak in that week. Anyway, so this is it. This is the last episode of this podcast for this year. I will be back next year. Uh, we will be back with 1995. Um, but as this is December 24th and 31st, I'll be taking a week or so off to enjoy Christmas like the rest of you. And I won't be putting a podcast out. So the first one will probably be out sometime in early 1990, uh, 1995. It'll be out sometime early next year, which will be 2022 when you're listening to this. And it'll be covering 1995. Blimey. If you would like to get in contact with us here at Kerrang Back Issues, we can be contacted through Instagram at Kerrang Back Issues, Twitter at Kerrang Pod, and through email at kerrangbackissues at gmail.com. I received an email this week from Spotify, and apparently they're going to start doing uh, reviews kind of like how Apple do. So if when this comes out, you're listening to this on Spotify, go and drop us a like, please. Or if you're not listening to this on Spotify, and you're listening to it on something else and you have access to Spotify, then please go and like this podcast and rate us if you don't mind. That would be lovely. If you want to give us... I don't know I don't know how they rate it over there. I haven't really seen it yet. I, I had a look at Spotify today, but I think it's being rolled out in the next few days. Um, so no clue how the actual like rating system is going to work. Um, if you don't like this podcast, then uh, please don't leave us a horrible review, <laughs> please. Just send me an email and say what's wrong with it, what you don't like, and maybe what I could change for 1995. And if you do like it, then leave me a lovely review. That would be great. Thank you so much in advance. Cover stars for this week are Bon Jovi. 
I don't know how many times Bon Jovi have been on the cover this year. I could probably go and count, but I imagine it's at least three. It's quite a lot, isn't it? Bon Jovi, world exclusive, at home with, at home with, at home for Christmas with John. Ozzy and Bruce Dickinson lose deals. Faith No More, we hear their new LP first. 80 page monster issue. Jello Biafra, the man behind the world's greatest punk label. Skid Row, new LP, track by track. Nirvana, new band revealed. And 1994, the year in metal, plus a 1995 calendar inside. And starting this week with a swift word from the editor. Kalunk. The sound of jaws hitting the floor in astonishment here at Kerrang HQ. Why you ask? Simply because as we were putting the finishing touches to this monster 80 page issue, we found out that two British heavy metal legends had lost their record deals. Yes, ex-Iron Maiden man Bruce Dickinson and living legend Ozzy Osbourne are currently without a deal in the UK, having parted company with EMI and Sony Epic respectively. It is a remarkable fact when you consider that Bruce and Ozzy are household names. Maybe it's a sign of the times. Times in which labels are willing to stake their faith in one-hit wonders rather than place any faith in tried and trusted metal talent. Of course, in a situation like this, it is always easy to react violently against the whole music industry and rabbit on about some kind of naive anti-metal conspiracy. It is also pointless. In these cases, details are still sketchy, and it could be that for both these artists, it's the best thing to happen to them in this country for a while. Who knows? You'll find more on Bruce and his Bosnia mission on page 6, while there's a full Aussie update on page 10. Of course, we'll have more details on both these stories next issue, which will hit your noise agent on January the 4th. Till then, Merry Christmas, keep cranking with Kerrang! into 95 and pass the Alka-Seltzer, Kerrangsters. Phil Alexander, Editor. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Mayhem, the hottest news in metal first. Nirvana, we name the new band. Nirvana star Dave Grohl will return next year in a new outfit called Foo Fighters. And Kerrang can reveal that the drummer has switched to guitar and vocals for the band, which may also feature Nirvana bassist Chris Novoselic. Novoselic has apparently been offered the job, but has yet to make any firm decision. All reports suggest that the bassist is interested. The band also features ex-Germs guitarist Pat Smear, who played with Nirvana on numerous live dates and of course their classic MTV Unplugged show, which was released as an album in October. No drummer has yet been found, auditions are currently in progress. Grow is said to have an album's worth of material on which he sings and plays all the instruments, already in the can. At least 20 songs are thought to have been recorded. Based in Seattle, Foo Fighters, named apparently in an obscure reference to UFOs, are described by one insider as a great band in their own right. There is no indication of what the new material actually sounds like though, the record company interest is said to be very high. It seems entirely possible however, that Grohl and his band may deliberately shun major labels. Nirvana's hatred of corporate bullshit was made clear in the recent Live Tonight sold out video and it seems reasonable to suggest that Grohl may wish to stay low key and stick with an indie label. Faith No More will rock Britain early in 95 with a new album, a new single and a full UK tour. They kick off on February 27th with the first single As Yet Unnamed from the new LP King For A Day, Fall For A Lifetime, which follows on March the 13th. The band then undertake their first UK headline tour since April 1990. 
Dates have still to be announced, watch this space for details, and there is already talk of summer festival dates. King for a Day, which was recorded with producer Andy Wallace in New York, is the band's first with new X-Man Trey Sprantz, who formerly played with Faith No More frontman Mike Patton in his offbeat project outfit, Mr. Bungle. Sprantz, of course, replaces sack guitarist Jim Martin, who was shown the door last Christmas. Bruce Dickinson's Christmas in the Trenches Bosnia mission has turned into a major nightmare. The ex-maiden singer who landed this once-in-a-lifetime gig thanks to Kerrang had to make the final part of his journey to Warton Sarajevo hidden inside a seven-ton truck after army chiefs withdrew their support because they could no longer guarantee his safety. The last Kerrang heard from Brave Bruce and his band, they were arming themselves with vodka and photographs of Iron Maiden to bribe checkpoint soldiers should their vehicle be searched. They were warned that this would be the only way to avoid being taken hostage. Motorhead had originally been booked for the event, a free seasonal metal show for the troops, but cancelled at last minute after a series of European dates fell through. The army then sent a fax to Kerrang as reported last week, asking if we could sort out a suitable replacement. Bruce stepped in and has promised to deliver a full In the Firing Line report upon his return. Full story next issue. Ozzy Osbourne is set for a supercharged 1995 with recording to begin imminently on his new album. But as Kerrang went to press this week, it emerged that the double O was set to part company with his label Epic. No official announcement has yet been made, but it looks certain that Ozzy's next LP will only be on Epic in North America. The superstar singer is currently thought to be shopping for a new deal. Originally slated to be called X-Ray, Ozzy's next LP will now carry a different title following a deluge of newer, improved material. That was the working title of the album when I was working with Steve Vai, so I don't really want to call the album anything right now, states Ozzy. Right now, I still feel I'm two good old Aussie rockers short of a great selection, but in my whole career, I've never had as many good songs written in my life. I've got enough for a couple of albums at the moment. Osborne has a core of 28 songs from which to pick a running order, and after a number of full starts, it's finally all systems go. Having spent an arduous but ultimately mismatched year with a variety of writing partners, Ozzy has found his stride with Brian Adams' songwriting buddy, Jim Valance. Records News and Anthrax, the legendary Fresh outfit, now have nine songs ready for their new album uh, titled Stomp. The band hoped to be in the studio with producer Michael Bienhorn by March with a subsequent album due out for Elektra during the autumn. Clutch, the cult US hardcore metalers, are currently demoing material for a new album which is set to go into production very shortly. Among the songs set for inclusion are Peterbilt, Tight Like That, Country Line, uh, Space Grass, or Rock and Roll Outlaw, Texan Book of the Dead, Neighborhood and SUHS. The record will be issued by East West during the latter half of 1995. Crowbar, the New Orleans heavies, are currently working on a new album for release through Bulletproof Music for Nations in May. According to main man Kirk Weinstein, it makes their debut album sound like Jeffro Toll. In Tomb's compilation record, the singles album has been delayed and will now be issued through Earache during February. Fudge Tunnel's album, In A Word, featuring rarities and tracks originally recorded for John Peel's Radio 1 show, has been delayed also and will now be issued through Earache on January the 30th. Sleep, the US stoner rockers have just finished work on their latest album, Dope Smoker, for the Earache label. This features just one song of some 37 minutes duration. Expect to release in 1995. Tour news and Bird in the Hand, the Dunstable venue, has been forced to cancel all previously announced gigs due to the fact that their license to present live shows is still awaiting renewal. 
The UK leg of the Black Crows Armorica or Bus Tour has now had a further date added. It's at Nottingham Royal Concert Hall on January the 31st. A single, High Head Blues, will be released by American Recordings on January the 23rd. Live, one of the Kerrang! hot tips for 1995, the American Rockers play three UK dates during February. These are Birmingham Edwards No. 8 on the 1st, London Highbury Garage 2nd, Glasgow King Tut Wawa Hut on the 4th. A new single US hit, I Alone, will be issued through Radioactive on February the 6th. All formats, CD cassette and clear 12-inch vinyl, will also include a live version of I Alone, plus Pain Lies on the Riverside from the band's first album, Mental Jewelry. Machine Head Following the band show at London's Astoria on December 22nd, there will be a special party called Christmas Rumble 94 held at the venue. This will be jointly hosted by Machine Head's label Roadrunner and MTV's Headbangers Ball. And those who attend the Machine Head show will be able to stay for this party at no extra cost. The Christmas Rumble 94 will be co-hosted by Machine Head main man Rob Flynn and Vanessa Warwick of Headbangers Ball. It will include a rock disco, giveaways, competitions, plus a live performance from Swedish band Backyard Babies. It will also feature the metal highlights of the year including the Kerrang! Metal Awards. Among those expected to make personal appearances at the party will be members of Paradise Lost, Carcass and Corrosion of Conformity. Incidentally, Swedish act Mary Beach Jane and British death mob Cancer will be supporting Machine Head at both the Astoria show and also Nottingham Rock City on December 22nd. The Nine Knights of Knee this young Yorkshire combo, who combines slapstick humour with covers of bands such as Faith No More, will play a New Year's Eve show at Bradford Rio's. Crossing the pond now to America, Mayhem America, the hottest US news as it happens. Starting this week with Lisa Johnson in LA. To celebrate the release of their spiffy new disc, Euthanasia, bit late with this, aren't you Lisa, editor? <laughs> Megadeth hosted a swanky fancy dress party in a castle tucked away in the Hollywood Hills, which meant lots of neat costumes. The Megadeth foursome came dressed as members of a non-spandex heavy metal group, Read they weren't dressed in fancy dress, but other guests, myself included, were dressed to the nines. White zombie bassist Sean Uzelt showed up as the devil in a blue dress and even had a pitchfork, pointed tail and devil horns. Alice in Chains' bassist Mike Inez came dressed as an unassuming non-spandex wearing kick-ass four-stringer, who may or may not be in a band right now. And although he was kind enough to stop for a photo, we didn't probe him on the status of the band because he probably knows as much as we do. Megadeth singer-guitarist Dave Mustaine spent much of the party socialising with guests. In Hollywood, we call it work in the room. Posing for many photos and signing several autographs, including some for his family members. Among the Mustaine posse were his aunt and uncle who stocked up on signed posters for the cousins. It wasn't the celebrity sightings that made this party so grand, for as you can see, the list is a little grim. Although the legendary Blue Saraceno of Poison was there, were hey. The party was held in an honest-to-goodness castle with turrets and a moat. And the rumour circulating the party was that part of the house is regularly used in the production of porno films to help offset the upkeep costs of the place, no doubt. That might explain the upstairs south wing bedroom's modest furnishings. Bed, empty bureau, empty closet, ceiling mirror. The bright orange shag carpet and the bearskin rug in front of the fireplace. Great party, great food, good luck Megadeth, you'll need it to pay off that tab. We join Don K now in New York. Nine Inch Nails rolled into town this week hotter than hell in the States and ready to wreck Madison Square Garden for two sold out nights. 
So imagine the shock and horror when it was announced uh, to the first night's already packed house that the show was cancelled. Apparently, the band's van was involved in a minor traffic accident on the way to the garden, during which guitarist Robin Fink's finger was fractured. Despite a doctor's protests, Fink continued to the arena and attempted to play backstage, but reportedly passed out from the pain. Thus, the band rescheduled the date for next night. Nine Inch Nails originally had a day off between the two gigs. But, why were 25 to 30 security guards seen running backstage just before the cancellation was announced? And as some have sarcastically suggested, couldn't the guitar player be replaced by tape loops anyway? In any case, Robin recovered in time for the next night and by all accounts Nine Inch Nails played a blinder. And just two nights later, Fink showed up at the tiny Rock Ridge Saloon for a bizarre surprise show that found Robin, Marilyn Manson bassist Twiggy Ramirez, and a drummer named Mark Allen performing with former Twisted Sister frontman Dee Schneider and covering all Twisted tunes. Apparently, Fink and cover artists who have their roots firmly planted in big stupid 80s hair metal. Enough so that Robin and Twiggy contacted Dee, told him what an inspiration he was to them and requested that they get together for a show. Dee agreed and the combo billed as sick motherfuckers packed the rock ridge. Introduced by Anthrax's Scott Ian, they cantered through a metalicious set that comprised You Can't Stop Rock and Roll, The Kids Are Back, The Price, Under The Blade, SMF, Burning Hell and I Wanna Rock, plus brief bits from Iron Maiden's Wasted Years and Flight of Icarus, and even a lick from Judas Priest Breaking The Law. Despite the brevity of the set and enormous difficulties in getting into the small venue, all who attended admitted to a nostalgic good time. News next time on Helmet, Testament and Killing Joke. <laughs> You've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Concerts, and the first concert reviewed this week is Corrosion of Conformity live at the Boardwalk Manchester, Thursday, December the 8th. Uh, I was just about to say 1994. We all know it's 1994. This is reviewed by Paul Travers, and this gets a static out of 5, which is a 3 out of 5. The most off-putting thing about this whole revamped hardcore scene is the cooler-than-thou obsession with credentials. In an interview in Kerrang 524, Corrosion of Conformity's frontman Pepper Keenan mauled Raging to Machine for supporting the same socio-political causes that his own outfit back. This is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. Surely you can't bag a good cause. But yes, for those who care about such things, Corrosion of Conformity do have the credentials. They were pioneers in crossover being one of the first few bands to bridge the then yawning gap between metal and hardcore. That was over a decade ago. However, and Corrosion of Conformity have since gone through more lineup changes than Black Sabbath. The current new lineup is not a problem in itself. Pepper Keenan possesses a fine growl, and when they stick to the shorter, more obviously hardcore material, Corrosion of Conformity can match anyone in the Pitbull stakes. Reed Mullin is an excellent drummer, and these songs go straight for the jugular, exploding with animal aggression and spittle. They're not exactly enthralling to watch. The front line is just a trio of bobbing fringes, but orally they stir up enough emotion to get the pit slamming. And then they follow that with a ponderous sub-Sabbath dirge that leaves everyone stranded in mid-mosh. Worse still are the fucking long-winded guitar solos and the moments when they sound like Yes. A loud and fucked up version of Yes, perhaps, but even the most screaming mutation of prog does not corrode conformity. Bank clerk to next hippies listen to Yes, not COC diehards. Somewhere between the two extremes, Corrosion of Conformity dish up more generic metal fare. It's complex and structured, but with roaring vocals and an occasional Pantera-styled crunch, you could attribute this constantly changing attack to a long career and a sizable back catalogue, but really Corrosion of Conformity sound less like one band with a streak of diversity and more like three separate acts. Of course, you still get the ultimate crowd pleaser in Vote With A Bullet, and at times COC sound a little bit special. 
Pioneers always get overtaken, however, and in this case, they even appear to be trawling backwards. In the final analysis, COC aren't cack, but they're just too normal to corrode anyone's sense of conformity. The next review is for Monster Magnet live at Sir Studios New York on Thursday, December the 1st. Reviewed by Don K, this gets a high voltage out of 5, which is a 4 out of 5. The lights turn all kinds of sickly shades of green and red as a kaleidoscope of patterns and images begins to revolve against the back screen. With the right substances, and no, that's not an encouragement, you could probably have one hell of a trip just staring at the stage. That is, until the wall of fuzzed out, murderously heavy sound empties your skull in a single wash of power. It's Monster Magnet, a seething, sinister, awesomely heavy experience that has devoured the essence of late 60s and early 70s psychedelic hard rock and regurgitated it into the 90s with aggression and a totally modern edge. Songs like Twin Earth and the new Negasonic Teenage Warhead from the forthcoming Dopes to Infinity opus are steeped in Sabbath and Cream references, but they also brim with a songwriting prowess and the sense of danger that only the best new bands possess. Guitar chords ring out like bells from hell. Frontman Dave Windorf growls his tales of cosmic mysticism into the mic as the lights cascade around him. Ultimately unhappy with the sound mix, he ends his set prematurely after six songs by swinging his axe wildly about the stage before pounding it into the floorboards. But even in frustration, Monster Magnet are magnificent and clearly poised for greater things. Look to your orb for a warning. The next review is for Wall, Skunkanancy and Skink. Live at the Highbury Garage, London, on Tuesday, December the 13th. Reviewed by Morat, this gets a high voltage out of 5, which is a 4 out of 5. Supporting Fudge Tunnel here a mere month ago, Skink were nothing more than a dismal Metallica with a drum machine. Much has changed, and tonight they show every sign of becoming a fine band. Most memorable is the rumbling bass that attempts to shake your spine loose on its way up to rattle your brain. But overall, the tunes have improved too, even if they are mostly too long. Skinks still need a focus of attention on stage and perhaps a real drummer, if they're ever going to be really entertaining, but at least Skink don't stink. And neither did a bizarrely named Skunk and Ancy. Alas, early on in their set, the thing that holds the attention most is their extremely shapely black female singer, but unfortunate sexism is soon overtaken by a sense of awe as Skunk and Ancy grow more mesmerising. Comparisons don't come easy, but raging as a machine on a very good day with a stunning, powerful and manic female lead isn't too far out, and an electric performance. Wall should be, if not huge, then at least way bigger than they are now. The turnout is disappointing, and that tempers the show. This place should be wild tonight, but no matter how hard the LA 4-piece go at it, we'll never reach the fever pitch that great songs like SOS and Wait deserve. Perhaps the problem is that war are difficult to categorise. Early Damned, Flipper, Scream, obviously, and Monster Magnet all spring to mind. And there are large dumps of the blues thrown in, but it's all square peg in round hole stuff. New tunes like Kill the Crow don't make it any easier, but they're a very fine live outfit, plain and simple. One thing's for sure, when they return to the UK in February with L7, Wall will definitely keep you away from the bar. We now come to this week's cover stars, Home for Christmas. How does John Bon Jovi, the biggest rock star in the world, celebrate Christmas? Simple, he invites Karang to his New Jersey home and takes Steve Beebe on a guided tour of Bon Jovi country. Whoa, hollers John Bon Jovi as a pedestrian walks out in front of his black Mercedes S500. Sometimes it's like no one wants to get old in New Jersey. John has spent the entire day here in Red Bank, New Jersey, talking to the press about his current smash hit single, Please Come Home for Christmas, not to mention his video co-star, Cindy Crawford. 
Tired of being cooped up in a photographer's studio, John offers me a guided tour of Bon Jovi country. First we pass through Sayreville, the working class town where John was born and raised. Here he worked at a shoe shop and later as a cleaner in the local recording studio. Now, as his Mercedes purrs out of Brook Street, John's janitor's days seem a million years away. These days, John Bon Jovi is arguably the biggest rock and roll star in the world. As we pass the Monmouth Arts Centre, a tiny venue smaller than London's marquee and one in which Bon Jovi play a special show every Christmas, John reveals that he loves driving. It gives him a chance to see normal life going on around him at the kind of leisurely pace he barely remembers. The Mercedes windows are dark enough to preserve its driver's anonymity. John Bon Jovi, you understand, cannot simply go for a stroll around town. Yeah, success can drive you down sometimes, he says emphatically. It's a life force when you first pick up a guitar and get that rush, that aspiration to take on the world and conquer it. There's no greater feeling for me than to write songs that people like. But when the machine comes down and tries to eat you up, it can kill you. Even if you survive, it can still fuck you up. In rock and roll, you can get a lobotomy without realising what's happening. People have had the life and soul sucked out of them. It does happen. Rumson is a beautiful tree-lined town 40 miles from New York City. Its peace is a complete contrast to New York City, where life speeds by at 300 miles an hour and everything is 10 times bigger than it needs to be. Uptown Rumson is home to New Jersey's elite, including John himself. Here's Bruce Springsteen's house, says John, roughly indicating in the direction of a series of palatial homes. Which one, I ask? Well, this whole road uh, belongs to Bruce, actually. It's incredible. It's a shame it's dark, John shrugs. You'd be able to see more of Bruce's grounds in the daylight. This entire area is all his. It just seems to keep going, doesn't it? Unfortunately, Bruce is in California right now. Otherwise, we could have dropped by. I'll take you by Richie's now and then on to mine. As we drive on past enormous roadside piles of autumn leaves, John talks more of his idol, Springsteen. Put quite simply, without Bruce, there'd be no John. And recently, John has realised that Bon Jovi have an equally profound effect on many kids' lives today. People that met at Bon Jovi concerts are now married. People who first got into rock music after seeing Bon Jovi on Top of the Pops now write for Kerrang! or work for record companies. As a writer, it's very satisfying to hear that I, uh, what I do has had such an effect on people. That, to me, was the ultimate goal. It all came home to me recently when I met this guy who plays quarterback for the New England Patriots. I felt like a little kid waiting to meet him, but to my amazement it turned out that he was a massive Bon Jovi fan. I was nervous about meeting him, so it felt really weird for me to give him my autograph. Suddenly it started to make sense. The quarterback was only 21 years old and every young person has heroes. Heroes are important. What would we do without them? If there was no Bruce, there'd be no me. And if there was no Bob Dylan, there'd be no Bruce. And if there was no Jimmy Page, there'd be no Richie Sambora. Richie Sambora lives in a particularly quiet corner of Rumsum, about 10 minutes walk from John's place. Although somehow you can't imagine the area being particularly quiet when the effervescent guitarist is in town. Despite Sambora being away, his house and garden are adorned with stunning Christmas lights, peace signs are displayed in the windows, and a white statue of Christ, arms outstretched, stands at the front of the garden. The effect would be welcoming were it not just a little ghostly. This whole complex is Richie's, chuckles John. It's a beautiful place. Flags everywhere, boats all over the place, and check out those peace signs. Rich isn't home. He should be on his way home from Nashville right now. I sang for about four days this week, and he's been finishing up the guitar parts today. Know a baseball player called Bobo Heater, John asks, gesturing towards another massive home. This guy, Mr. Black Fucking Cloud, we call him, lives over here on the right. He was involved in a boat accident recently when a couple of the crew were decapitated. Then, right in the middle of the World Series, he was trimming his hedges and casually cut one of his fingers off. Don't go near that house, man. It's obviously cursed. The Mercedes speeds on. John chatting and laughing all the while. 
See that huge house on the left? When I was a kid, I pulled up there because my girlfriend, who is now my wife, told me it was up for sale. Not having the first fucking clue about buying houses, I thought I'd just roll up and make an offer. At this time, there was no way we could really afford the house. When the people that lived there caught sight of me coming up the drive, they immediately called the cops. They thought I was some dirtbag from downtown come to shoot them and steal their daughter or something. Ah, here's my house. You gotta see this place. Predictably, John Bon Jovi's house takes your breath away. It's a huge, ultra-modern, technological fortress that initially reminds you of something from the Star Wars trilogy. Not quite the Death Star, but pretty close. The Mercedes sweeps soundlessly down John's twisting driveway, passing security cameras and comes to a halt outside the garage. With a gentle hum, the garage door rises, revealing two identical Ferraris. They are, according to John, just sort of lying about. One belongs to his wife and she rarely needs it. In the enormous, spotlessly clean kitchen, Dorothea Hurley Bon Jovi is stirring a pot of pasta. Dorothea and John have been married for several years, but have been an item since high school. She has been an inspiration for many of John's lyrics. The slushy ones, mainly, baby Stephanie is asleep upstairs. Dorothea is a modern charming host, and it's a refreshing change to find a major rock star who has married for love as opposed to the prestige of being seen with a silicon-boosted peroxide babe. The Bon Jovi residence is every bit as large as you'd expect, but it isn't over-furnished or fussy. Each cavernous room has a clean, modern air, with white walls and steel black leather sofas. Security cameras and monitor screens are discreetly placed. Strangely, there don't appear to be any windows, but what really amazes you is the sheer size and height of the rooms themselves. John leads me into the living room, where an enormous white wall is covered head to foot in shining silver, gold and platinum discs. There must be literally hundreds. To dust the highest ones, you need a very tall ladder. The centerpiece is a presentation case containing eight shimmering discs arranged in a V around the band's faces. John gazes upward silently as I struggle to take in the enormity of it. Here is a shrine to Bon Jovi's success, and just like the achievement itself, it's nothing short of stunning. And it doesn't end there. The next few rooms, connected by a short corridor, are all adorned with a plethora of framed photos featuring Bon Jovi posing with other celebrities, including Michael Jackson. There are signed photographs and posters of John's baseball heroes, plus various pictures of elderly black gentlemen who I assume are blues legends. Back in the living room, there is an enormous Warhol-esque illustration of John and Dorothea. John can sit down in virtually any part of this house and gaze up at some souvenir or happy memory. We go down into the basement to John's New Jersey underground studio. Blaze of Glory, Keep the Faith and the next Bon Jovi album were all demoed here. It's a place where all five band members, including session bassist Huey McDonald, can meet up and work undisturbed. Amusingly, there is the obligatory pornographic photo on the wall. As we return to the living room, it strikes me how incredibly normal John Bon Jovi has managed to remain during these last eight years of world domination. His enthusiasm remains undiminished and his ego never threatens to fly off the handle. When I tell him Kiss might be reforming with original members Ace Freely and Peter Chris, he looks as excited as a small child on Christmas Eve. John has taken the adulation of millions of fans with a pinch of salt. There were these French people in front of my house earlier, he recalls, and there was someone hanging around when I wanted to go for a run this morning, but most people are very nice. I don't appreciate people banging on my door night and day, however, and I feel that my home is the one place that should be off limits. Otherwise, I'm always flattered that certain people care enough about the band to want to hang out for us. I haven't forgotten what it's like to be a fan. Don't you ever find it threatening? No, and I don't take it too seriously either. There have been a couple of kooky situations, but you can't let it rule your life. This guy turned up at my door once claiming he was a messenger from Jesus. He knocks on my door with this big greasy bag in his hand and this evil look in his eye. And I'm so fucking dumb that I open the door. He says, John, Jesus told me to come to you. The voices won't leave me alone, man. But you know what? 
I sat down with this guy and sorted him out. I said, it's okay, Jesus didn't really tell you to come here. What can I do for you? And after that, he seemed totally together and felt kind of bad about it all. I didn't feel in any danger. I only pray that no one ever messes with my kids. I know my wife can take care of herself. Back in the car, as we drive back out through Romsen, John talks about his kinky new video for Please Come Home for Christmas. It features Cindy Crawford and John in a variety of clinches. Unfortunately, this is by no means the first time John has released a Christmas song. John justifies the obvious tackiness of this by explaining that these tunes have always been released for a good cause. John has been involved with a Special Olympics charity since 1987, spending time with kids on an Indian reservation and playing charity shows to buy uniforms for the kids to wear at the games. I don't know why, but I felt the need to do something for kids that are handicapped and can't always look out for themselves, he says. Now that we've come to a convenient break in our schedule, it seemed an ideal time to release a single for the charity. And it turned out that Cindy Crawford was available and had agreed to be the love interest in the video. I said, I get to kiss Cindy Crawford for seven hours, fine. The very day before the interview took place, reports of the collapse of Crawford's marriage to actor Richard Gere were confirmed. Surely, with John and Cindy canoodling all over MTV this Christmas, tongues are really going to start wagging. My tongue was certainly wagging in that day, laughs John. It was all in good fun, I swear. She's a great kisser, she's a great, uh, sport. And I still think the world not only of her, but also of Richard Gere. He's an immensely talented actor, and all I can say is that I'm sorry their marriage didn't work out. But I don't think a little kiss from me made any difference. My wife was very cool about it too. She's been around me too long to worry about our relationship not being secure. Suddenly, a crowd of people cross the road in front of us. John spots flashing lights ahead. I hope this isn't something bad going on, he mutters, peering intently through the windscreen. Thankfully, it isn't. A crowd of local people have gathered around a Christmas tree to sing carols, while laughing children dart about with lanterns swinging from their arms. An advertisement tells us that Santa is to arrive on the scene at any moment. John Bon Jovi is a big fan of Christmas. He can rarely be a part of such local festivities given his megastar status and consequently appears entranced by the goings-on. For a few moments, he pulls the Mercedes over to the side of the road and stares out at the little crowd, beaming. This is real American life, isn't it? That's so true, he exclaims. It's a cliche picture that someone will poke fun at, but I can't. I look at a scene like this and really dig it. Kids are happy and excited. What more could you want? It's so great that this sort of thing still happens once a year. Look at the trouble people go to to decorate their houses and trees. This isn't Mansionville or anything. It's just a cool little American town. So, apart from Cindy Crawford, what do you hope Santa brings you this Yuletide? Well, I already have Cindy Crawford, he laughs. What I'd really like this Christmas is the chance to be really happy. And right now, I don't think that's unobtainable at all. These days, I don't just have the success of the band, I have Stephanie. The stability of my family life in general and the band are all happy. The accomplishment and the challenge that exists for further accomplishment is cool. So when I drive through Rumsen and Red Bank and see this sort of thing going on, it makes me feel glad and thankful that I'm alive. Look, he laughs. Here comes Santa now. Merry Christmas, everyone. Communication now and the letter of the week this week and the last letter for 1994 begins... I wish Eddie Vedder and all his other grunge mates would just cheer the fuck up. It must be so fucking hard being so popular and earning money for doing something you love. They want to try being skint and on the dole. I mean, for fuck's sake. 
If they don't enjoy the lifestyle, why don't they fuck off and buy some desert island in the middle of nowhere and leave us to enjoy our lives? I met Warriors Soul at Glasgow and they've been through total shit for the last two years. Yeah, they were the happiest, friendliest guys I've ever met. I think it's time people just stop being so fucking sad and realise you only live once. Let's forget about Vedder and Co and let them wallow in their own misery and self-pity while we trip out to some acid punk. Let's get high. A space age playboy from Berwick-upon-Tweed. Well said, uh, Space. It's about time some of these superstars just stopped moaning and got on with it. You win a Karang cap, you spawny git, editor. Many thanks to the genius of Walshy for telling us all who Tom Petty is, communication issue 523. Sadly though, he forgot to mention that Mr Petty is in fact a sad old has-been, frightened of loud noise who wouldn't know a rock riff if it wiped his poodle ass after a lightweight gig on the cam. I presume the genius's letter was meant to be sent to Vox where other pop fans would get to read it, but was delivered to Kerrang by mistake. And while I'm here, my mate reckons that the person on the America cover is in fact a bloke with his chappy clasp between his thighs, whereas I simply reckon that the CD is bollocks and recommend everyone should stop spending on such silly hippie twaddle and get some machine head down them. Merry Christmas, preacher of shame, he filled. I'm totally distraught. My favourite brand and Britain's best potential export, the Wild Hearts, have just insulted me in your hallowed magazine. I'm of course referring to the ultra-rare album that is only available to members of the Wild Hearts' fan club. What is the motivation behind this release? They'll probably insult our intelligence by trying to convince us that it's a release for the Wild Hearts' most devoted fans. What utter bollocks. What about those of us who've bought their CDs, t-shirts and attended as many of their gigs as possible? Are we not devoted? It just sounds like a scam to increase fan club subscriptions and thus line their pockets with the old crinkly stuff. I remember you when you were musicians, but now you're turning into businessmen. For Tang Old Biscuit Barrel, South Yorkshire. Never fear, Fishing for Luckies is available to everyone, but it's very limited edition. The address to apply to is the fan club, but you don't have to be a member. After reading the letter from Euronymous's successor, Kerrang522, we were so fucking angry that we decided to write a poem about the sad prat Paul Timms whom this shithead applauds. To hell with Paul Timms. Paul Timms, you're a fucking dick. You fucked your life up somehow, now you're locked up in the nick. Where's your Satan now? Burning churches, as you've learned, is not the way to go. You stupid arsehole, you should have burned. I hope your death is slow and painful. Sit you may day after day in your prison cell. Since you love Satan so much, you can burn with him in hell. Two pissed off rockers from Ireland. Gagging for a shagging. Please print a pic of John Connor from Dog Eat Dog, as he is the greatest frontman of his day and I bet he'd be great fun in bed. Hope you can satisfy my needs. Thank you, Amy Wall, London. I have just read Kerrang's Pearl Jam issue 523. Corey Clark from Warrior Soul is a fucking tosser. Eddie Vedder is a better man than Corey could ever fucking dream of being. I agree with Pearl Jam about setting up their own tour circuit. So fuck the Criminal Justice Act and let Pearl Jam play in Britain. Pearl Jam's biggest fan, Andy, Scotland. I've become accustomed to Kerrang's writers calling me a loudmouth, which at times I can accept, and making me out to be a wild man, which also can be true but there are two items in a recent issue that were absolutely incorrect. One, there was a piece about Pearl Jam's lawsuit with Ticketmaster in which people were asked to give quotes. Mine was cut short because what I said was the truth and I think that frightened one of your editors. To be honest, it frightened me too and I'm glad it was cut. But without the rest of the statement, it made me look like I was back in Ticketmaster and I absolutely am not. If what I've heard about the case is true, Pearl Jam have every right, as do we all, to ask what the practice in question be stopped. 
Um, I'm all for cheaper tickets for whatever reason. I've always thought it would be fun to have more fans at cheaper ticket prices than less fans at more expensive ticket prices. Long live rock and roll. Go Eddie, go. Two. In the same issue, Steve Bibby paid me a lovely compliment about Corey inventing grunge editor in his feature on Warrior Soul, but I'm afraid it was a little misconstrued by my old friend Chris Watts, who obviously thought I'd written it. I had told Steve this was going to happen, but never in my wildest dreams did I think one of the magazine's own writers would nail me to the wall on it, especially Chris. Is there no justice? I pointed out these facts to Mr. Watts during our surprise encounter at 3am at the Columbia Hotel, where the band and I were guests due to a recent eviction from the London Embassy. Chris, what's your excuse for being at the Columbia? No hard feelings, just don't blame me for grunge. Corey Clark, Warrior Soul. What follows next is a letter to Kareng from a teenage virgin. In reply to Susan Ward's drivel issue 524, I'd like to point out to her that Kerrang! is a music publication which keeps its readers up to date with rock today. It's not fucking designed to cater for frustrated cunts like you to drool over sad pretty boy pictures. When was the last time I saw a decent pair of tits for us lads in Kerrang? If you must have somebody appealing to look at, and if the appearance of the geeks on the front cover determines whether or not you buy a mag, fuck off and buy Sky Magazine. Failing that, get yourself 8 inches of battery-powered plastic to relieve your pent-up frustrations. You old crone. Matt Hazard from Berry. Short and Curlies. Just heard Machine Head for the first time and can't believe what bollocks it is. Mindless heavy crap. That's what it is. Nice jumping on the bandwagon, Mr. Flynn. Jabba the heart and pob from Gwent. Ill communication. We now come to a piece in Kerrang! called 1994, The Year in Metal. The hits... The misses, the controversies, the comebacks, the festivals, the splits, the madness. Paul Rees looks back at 12 months according to Kerrang. American Hot, the white hot stateside success stories of 94 were Stone Temple Pilots. The cynics may have scoffed, but the Shirley Temple Pilots, as they're more commonly known, shifted some 4 million copies of their purple opus. They also found a rare media ally in the big Kerrang zone, Mike. I can pick them up, peak. Peak. It should be remembered once ludicrously insisted that the Choir Boys' Bittersweet and Twisted was the greatest album ever. Machine Head. Some of you got their demo through a Kerrang giveaway where 200 Machine Head tapes were sent out for now back in 94 and it all went on from there. Not only were the Oakland California mob the heavy metal discovery of the year, they also revived the genre's age old tradition of ensuring that the ugliest member of the band was in possession of a pair of drumsticks. This is the shit Donkey. Burn My Eyes 5LP review Kerrang 506. Soundgarden, the super unknown LP finally elevated the Seattle Quartet to the big league, entering the US album chart at number one. Green Day, from slobby beachcore kids to million sellers, Green Day's Dookie album has been in the Billboard Top 20 for over 40 weeks and the multi-coloured head Barnet boys have been playing to 10,000 people per night. Offspring, from California, Orange County Oaks Offspring are up there selling punk rock by the truckload. Still signed to ex-Bad Religion man Brett Guritz's Epitaph label and their second LP smash, has gone through the roof in the US with sales also hitting the 3 million mark. Also raking in the dosh and the superlatives. Nine Inch Nails, Pantera, Beastie Boys, Counting Crows, Biohazard, Candlebox, Live and Collective Soul. Firing Blanks, Metal's biggest flops of the year were Motley Crue. The new Motley Crue's comeback album couldn't have disappeared any quicker if it had been released over the Bermuda Triangle. Ditto their US tour which was so sparsely attended that ex-frontman Vince the Dude Neil was able to gleefully record ticket sales at several venues by counting his fingers and toes. David Lee Roth 
In a misguided attempt to grow old gracefully, Diamond Dave cut his hair, bought a matching set of polo neck sweaters and stopped telling jokes. His Your Filthy Little Mouth album was by popular consent, utter arse. ZZ Top, Texan Trio described their Antenna album as a return to the band's roots. Roughly translated, this meant that only members of their immediate family would actually buy it. Alice Cooper, Alice what's the matter? No one bought me last Temptation album, mate. Cheap Trick, the veteran pop rockers optimistically called their new album Woke Up With A Monster. Went to sleep with a minnow would have been more applicable. Also belly up in a big way. King's X, Suicidal Tendencies, Infectious Grooves, Magnum, Dio and Phantom Blue. The comebacks, the little and large combos returning to the fray this year were Megadeth. Dave Mustaine, his mouth and his crew blaze black with a decidedly commercial edge on euthanasia. Musically and lyrically, we have few boundaries. We work at a level of quality that few match and most fear. Dave Mustaine, Kerrang 495. Slayer, after spending four years supping beer, watching American football and generally being very lazy indeed, the death metal gods storm back with a mighty divine intervention, slabber wax and an all-conquering UK tour. There's not a metal band on the planet who can touch Slayer as a live act. Paul Brannigan, Kerrang 521. Queensryche, the thinking manned metal band made a suitably cerebral return with the promised land platter in October. Apparently, detailing the band's inner psyches, the accompanying lyric sheet should have been equipped with a thesaurus. The Splits, out the door in 94 were Little Angels. We will fight on, insisted the young gods once they'd parted company with their label, Polydor. Sadly, they proved to be as resistant as a chocolate fireplace and on May the 11th it was announced that the quintet show at London's Royal Albert Hall on July 2nd would be their last. We'll never go out of fashion, guitarist Bruce John Dickinson, Kerrang 488, April the 2nd. My favourite one here, Wolfsbane. I'll never leave Wolfsbane, Blaze Bailey was often fond of roaring. Strangely, he never added, unless someone offers me a lot of money to do so. Rest in peace, the howling mad shitheads. I suppose we've been betrayed. Blaze Bailey hasn't really been honest with us. Guitarist Jace Edwards, Kerrang 476. Faith No More. Out when guitarist Big Jim Martin, in came ex-Mr. Bungle Whittler, Trace Brance. Bon Jovi. Grown men wept when on December the 3rd it was officially confirmed that the new Joyzy superstars, legendary bassist Alec John Such, had left the band taking his eye patch with him. The Wild Hearts. Main man, madman, Ginger once claimed he'd wanted to form a band with CJ ever since he swam with the tattooed love boys. This year, he decided that he's always wanted to sack him as well. <laughs> also hanging up the towel while handing out the CVs, Coverdale Page, Man of War, Mindfunk, Damn Yankees, Black Sabbath, Danzig, Dogs de Armoire and Paradise Lost. Controversy. Sepultura. Mad Max Cavalera did more porridge than Ronnie Barker in 94. He was arrested on no less than three occasions, most notably at the Hollywood Rocks Festival in Sao Paulo, Brazil on January the 15th for allegedly spitting on the Brazilian flag. All charges were subsequently dropped. More seriously, Sepultura were unwittingly linked to the murder of Middlesbrough schoolgirl Nikki Conroy on the 30th of May. Both the Daily Mirror and The Sun stupidly trumpeted that her alleged killer Stephen Wilkinson's favourite band was Sepultura, whose blood-chilling titles include Murder, Slaves of Pain and Screams Behind the Shadows. They would have blamed it on Garth Brooks and embittered Cavalera told Kerrang 493. It's easier to blame it on heavy metal or punk because it's extreme. The next Sepultura album is not expected to be a barrel of laughs. Still, at least Brazil won the World Cup. 
The Black Crows, an eventful year for the Crows, the brothers Grimm, Chris and Rich Robertson refused to speak to each other for most of it. The band's third album was recorded and scrapped and re-recorded, they threw a wild party wherein all the guests removed their clothes and took lots of drugs, and to cap it all, they decided to adorn the front cover of their Amorica album with a beaver shot onwards. Stage diving. Brooklyn Hardnuts Biohazard had their second stage set at Donington prematurely curtailed, the organisers objecting to the hazard inviting a few hundred fans onto the stage. It took the tragic death of 21-year-old Leo Connor, who sustained serious head injuries at Motorhead's London Forum show on June 19th, to put things into perspective. Sebastian Bach Suicide is the ultimate act of selfishness, megalomania and cowardice, Skid Row screamer Sebastian Bach told The Big Kerrang on May 21st. He was talking about Kurt Cobain. Fortunately, he has since decided not to pursue a career in counselling and has returned to work on his band's long overdue third album. Pantera. It was a funny old year for the Cowboys from Hell. While their Fabian driven opus was crashing into the US charts at number one, frontman Phil Anselmo was being arrested and charged with assaulting a security guard during a gig in New York. Come June, at Nottingham Rock City's pre-Donington Bash, it was drummer Vinnie Paul and guitarist Dime McDowell's turn to threaten GBH. Their intended respective victims were two Kerrang scribes, one poor and defenseless, the other Morat. The former scarpered into the night, the latter said something along the lines of go away and extremely jerky movements you silly little man. Most unfortunate of all though was Anselmo's decision to tickle tongues with his other half in Kerrang 496. Many mistook our Phil's beloved for a bloke and unfairly labelled the bullet headed ball at a raven sausage jockey. Oh dear. It's really interesting that Kerrang mentioned that because I remember the letters coming into Kerrang around that time being really, really homophobic, saying that they didn't want to see that stuff on the cover of a magazine. And, you know, you like to think of people that like rock and metal to be forward thinking, but there was some pretty nasty homophobia going on at the time. And it turns out it wasn't actually homophobia because the person Phil Anselmo was kissing was his other half who was a female. There we go. Although actually it was homophobia because those people didn't know any different. So yeah, what a bunch of idiots and they embarrassed the rock community this year. Murder, mayhem and madness. This year more than any other heavy metal turned nasty. A war with Satan. The Norwegian black metal militia continued their novel recruitment campaign throughout 94. For a negligible subscription fee, you too could be murdered or thrown behind bars for most of your adult life. April, Emperor drummer Bard G. Eiffel, better known as Faust, was convicted of the murder of Magnus Andreasen and sentenced to 14 years imprisonment. May, Burzum leader Varg Vikernes, aka Count Grishnak, was sentenced to jail for 21 years on May 28th for the murder of his arch-rival Empress Euronymous. Vikernes had told the court in Oslo, I don't care about Arsef, he's dead and I'm alive, and that is that. As an alibi, this had seemed to be a dead duck from the start. September, four members of Necropolis, an unknown black metal outfit from Kent, are convicted of carrying out a spate of copycat crimes involving damage to churches and the desecration of graves. David Wharton and Mark Reeve, both 22, and Kevin Mooney, 21, were jailed for 30 months each at Maidstone Crown Court. Paul Timms, 18, the alleged ringleader, was sent to a young offenders institution for 30 months. I can't believe that anybody takes this satanic stuff seriously. Somebody just give them a good fucking boot. Uh, Bruce Dickinson, Kerrang 514. Also scarred in 94, Manic Street Preachers guitarist Ricky James was admitted to a private London clinic to receive treatment for chronic self-abuse. The Wild Hearts bassist Danny foolishly dislocated his knee on stage at the Reading Festival. The poison chief powder Brett Michaels cheated death in June when he wrecked his Ferrari on LA's Riverside Drive. The almighty bass thing Floyd London twisted his knee during a show in Europe in September and 
Iron Maiden frontman Blaze Bailey engaged his motorbike in a crash in October. He was left on crutches and unable to run to the hills. Festival Fever. Wanted. Warm overpriced beer, mud, rain, wind and piss. Apply with large booking fee to the following. Monsters of Rock, Dunnington Park, June the 4th. Dynamo Festival, Eindhoven, Holland, May 21st, 22nd. The Phoenix Festival, Longmaston, July 15th, 17th. Lollapalooza 94, US, July, August. And Woodstock 2, Woodstock, August 13th, 14th. And the Reading Festival, August 26th to the 28th. Rural Britannia. Therapy, a hugely successful album in Troublegum, a succession of riftastic festival appearances and Koran cover stars on no less than three occasions. Terrorvision, a record five top 40 hit singles, a silver disc for their How To Make Friends and Influence People album, two sold out UK tours and acclaimed appearances at Donington and Reading. Skin, chest caked in foundation, the unapologetic cockrockers and their self-titled debut album enjoyed a willy-wavingly impressive year. Paradise Lost, arguably the Brit metal phenomenon of the year. The Lost's icon platter has now sold in excess of 300,000 copies worldwide. And The Wild Hearts, last year's Ginger's Mob were honoured as best new band in the Korean Readers Poll. In 94, they played their most successful UK tour to date, headlined the inaugural second stage at Donington and romped away with the honours at Reading. Happily, their leader remains as unpredictable as a Rottweiler. Jurassic Rock you thought these prehistoric beasts were extinct, you were wrong. Plant and Page, quite simply the wrinkly reunion of the decade. White Snake, bloody but unbowed after his ill-fated collaboration with Jimmy Page, David Coverdale and the most blatant double entendre in rock returned for a greatest hits LP and a European tour. Kiss, remarkably the Kiss My Ass tribute album saw a host of alternative types, Rage Against the Machine, Faith of the More, Tall Dinosaur Jr, worshipping at the God of Thunder's altar. However, Carefree Rage rapper Zach De La Rocha has yet to tell the world he's ready and willing to pull the trigger of his love gun. Black Sabbath. It's fairly safe to say that the original Doom Metal Brigade who was celebrated by a host of metal mothers on the Nativity and Black Tribute album and the band who recorded an album called Cross Purposes with vocalist Tony the Cat Martin really shouldn't be one and the same outfit. Sleepless in Seattle, 1994. The year the smell of teen spirit turned rotten. Nirvana. Kurt Cobain, 1967-1994, rest in peace. Pearl Jam, 94 proved to be another year of self-inflicted trouble and strife for the band for whom the word cheerful was most certainly not invented. Soundgarden, despite the phenomenal success of Super Unknown, the year turned sour for Chris Cornell & Co when in August they cancelled their remaining tour dates including an appearance at the Reading Festival. Officially Cornell had lost his voice, unofficially this may well have been bollocks. Alice in Chains, the seemingly irrevocable demise of Alice in Chains began in July, when it was announced that they had pulled out of both their slot and Metallica's US tour and from the Woodstock 2 bill. Amidst mounting concern about the health of frontman Lane Staley, ever since, persistent rumours of their breakup have neither been confirmed nor denied. Hole, Courtney Love's Year Zero went from bad to worse with the tragic death of her bassist Kristen Pfaff from a drug overdose. She rounded off the year by signing to Q Prime Management, proving that there may be light at the end of the tunnel. And last, but by no means least, 94 was undoubtedly the year of the Kerrang. In the past 12 months, your favourite very heavy, very humble organ has rocked past its 500th issue, unleashed the riffmongous Kerrang! the album, and hosted that spectacularly star-studded multimedia event, the Great British Heavy Metal Awards. All that, and the ultimate in heavier metal each and every week. So stay tuned for more mayhem than you can possibly handle in 95. Till then, and in the words of a certain esteemed donor, stay clean.
We now come to singles, and the singles are reviewed by Malcolm Dome this week. The first single reviewed is Stand Up by Thunder. This gets 1k. There was a time when Thunder sounded energetic, exuberant, and yes, alive. Now they are simply dull old men who sound bitter and desperate. Danny Bowles clearly doesn't have his heart in the band anymore, and Luke Morley's guitar playing is forgettably tuneless. Thunder, more like drizzle these days. Sympathy for the Devil by Guns N' Roses. This gets 4Ks. Arguably the most difficult Rolling Stones song of them all to cover, but GNR do an impressive job in customising it to their taste and style. It does reek of impending horror and doom and has a certain air of eerie reality. Not the greatest Guns cover of all time, but proof there is still life in their particular cesspit. Smashing Pumpkins with their single Rocket. This gets 3Ks. Going for a hypnotic, almost ambient sound, the Smashing Pumpkins sound rather like Aerosmith on Mogadons. Rocket is a rewrite of the Smiths' sweet emotion for the mid-90s slasher wrist generation. Not essential, but interesting. Megadeth with their single Train of Consequences. This gets 3Ks. So, Dave Mustaine continues to develop into a songwriter of stature. Train of Consequences is a chugger that has pace, power and a mature sense of melody. Nobody is more surprised than me. Just a shame that the band chose to put the previously unreleased Crown of Worms on this release. Would you believe that it's a pale imitation of Saxon's Motorcycle Man and the live stuff doesn't do them much justice either. Jonestown Mind by The Almighty. This gets 3Ks. Personally, I feel The Almighty don't pen songs as immediate and strong as they once did. However, Jonestown Mind does have muscular awareness and a certain charm all of its own. I just feel that in their haste to acquire a punk credibility, Ricky Warwick et al have lost something vital. Belief in their own skills. The single of the week this week is Hexed by the Mono Men. This gets 4Ks. A surprise single of the week, it shocked me as much as it might you. But this is just raucous garage mayhem full of passion, conviction and tunefulness. The Mono Men are glorious New York nutters. With a full tank of methanol and the spirit to burn it all on a rush of free chord acceleration. Doubtless, this lot will never be in a reader headlining combo, but who cares? This lot have the jagged class others can only dream of emulating. I will be announcing the albums of the year as voted for by Kerrang! writers in a moment, but before that, let's review this week's albums. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy it couldn't get off the turntable. The albums of the week this week, and I emphasise albums, are Chromags, The Age of Quarrel, Best Wishes, Murphy's Law, Murphy's Law, Back with a Bong, Warzone, Don't Forget the Struggle, Don't Forget the Streets, Open Your Eyes, and Various Sunday Matinee, The Best of New York Hardcore. Reviewed by Phil Alexander, Chromags gets 4Ks, Murphy's Law gets 2Ks, Wargazone gets 3Ks, and Various gets 4Ks. Welcome to the sound of the Big Apple rotting to the core, the sound of punk rock headbutting metal and taking the thrash to the max ethics one step beyond. Honest, brutal and streetwise, New York hardcore came of age in the mid to late 80s and threw up a set of platters which still sound defiantly fierce and make this year's so-called punk hardcore revival seem rather lily-livered. In fact, this set of repackaged double CD reissues from Profile Records demonstrate both the power and the shortcomings of the whole New York hardcore trip. On the one hand, you have the awesome riffage of the Chromags, a band whose sheer heaviosity makes sense on any death deck. On the other hand, there's the hijinks of Murphy's Law, whose beer core may be worth a hoot in a sweaty New York slam pit. 
but in the cold light of 1994 sounds rather irksome to British ears. Led by the irrepressible Jimmy Gestapo, the Murphy mob have their moments, notably on their second offering, Back With A Bong, but lack songs and staying power. The Krishna-worshipping Cro-Mags, however, still manage to sound as threatening today as they did back when their Age of Quarrel debut roared out on the Rock Hotel label in 86. Age of Quarrel emerges as chock full of snarling charm, boot boy anthems and rampant riffarama. Come the mag's second LP, Best Wishes, Harley Flanagan's heroes flex their metallic muscle further, adding a serrated maiden meets motorhead edge. Not as awesome as the band's debut, Best Wishes is still a slice of harder than now attitude which eats Biohazard for breakfast. Elsewhere, Skinhead Crew Warzone dust down their terse barking delivery on Don't Forget the Struggle, Don't Forget the Streets and Open Your Eyes, a crunching twin blast also recently issued by Lost and Found. If their flag waving was misconstrued as ambiguous by right on musos at the time, their musical message has remained fresh and intact. The final set in this hardcore holocaust comes in the form of the Sunday Matinee compilation, a veritable who's who of New York hardcore. It packs classic cuts by Bad Brains who relocated there from DC, the Blast Happy Agnostic Front, Chromags, Warzone, Straight Edge's Youth of Today, Metalized Mavericks Leeway, a fledgling sick of it all, as well as lesser known scene heroes such as Bold, Judge and Raw Deal. A 17 track affair, it's either a fine intro to a scene whose legacy includes Quicksand, Helmet, Madball and Into Another, or a reminder of exactly what aggressive street sus music should sound like. Hard to the core indeed. The next album reviewed this week is Over It by Face to Face. Reviewed by Gordon Goldstein, this gets 4Ks. Everybody wants the truth. Grouse face-to-face frontman Trevor Keith in his best Jake Burns holiday in an Orange County drool on the Southern California Punksters debut. It's that voice of a generation thing, shouted choruses, grinding guitars and enough skateboard soundtrack energy to keep the freshest face Green Day and Offspring fan bounding off the walls. On this 7-track collection, also containing a couple of previously released free called shards, face-to-face don't aim to break the mould but instead take every bundle of chords and lyrics and twist full-blown anthems out of them. Don't be surprised to hear bits of The Clash, Bad Religion or Stiff Little Fingers in Disconnected or I Used to Think, must be something in the water. They could be the most passionate pop punksters on the planet. By the end of this you'll be on the skate ramp sailing through the air utterly convinced. The next review is for two albums, Avail with their album Dixie, which gets 4Ks, and Various Land of Greed, World of Need, which gets 3Ks. This review is also by Gordon Goldstein. Anti and indie, with a smidgen of crustiness somewhere in their throats, Richmond Yobs Avail are rapidly garnering stateside punk as fuck kudos, for good reason. Armed with a barbed wire clutch of melodies, a fagazian mindset and a couple of rock moves that meet Pearl Jam halfway. Avail hitch up their energy battery and make it all explode like the acoustic guitar lace virus or an even more bitter snarl through of John Mellencamp's pink houses. In the great US punk resurgence, Avail will be at the top of the list. The Discord faithful will no doubt have their ears picked by Land of Greed, World of Need, a 14 band cover of the one album of Fugazi Man Ian Mackay's post minor threat efforts with Embrace. The results range from excellent interpretations from the aforementioned Avail and Rancid who wreak ha- beautiful havoc on Can't Forgive, to Nations on Fire who toss in extra wint-worthy lines like I'll walk the straight edge all my life, but hey, at least they're committed. Now, when do we get the Government Issue Tribute LP? And so, to round off 1994, we come to the Kerrang! Critics' Choice Album of the Year, 
And the album of the year is Therapy with their album Trouble Gum. Kerrang says, the most perfect collision of punk and metal you will hear this year. This is Therapy turning their previous threats into actual oral fuggery. Take the rampant rifferama of the likes of Metallica Megadeth or even Priest and Stiff Little Fingers' ability to write gigantic power punk and the paint stripping directness of Sugar and you're close. Sheer pile driving intensity. 4K's Phil Alexander Kerrang 480. So what the punk metal kings therapy reckon of the splendid accolade of being devoted the Kerrang Critics number one album of 94? The top smart Irish trio had this to say. Obviously we're absolutely knocked out. It's been a brilliant year. In no small way thanks to the tremendous support we've had from Kerrang readers and writers. There's no way we could have done it without you. Thanks and look forward to seeing you in 95. Andy, Fife and Michael. And the top records of the year, there is a top 25. So number two, um, as voted for by the Kerrang writers, is Soundgarden Super Unknown. Number three, Burn My Eyes Machine Head. Four, Amorica The Back Crows. Five, Pandemonium Killing Joke. Six, Throwing Copper Live. Seven, Sky Valley by Kaios. Eight, Space Age Playboy's Warrior Soul. Nine, Cleansing by Prong. Ten, Unplugged in New York Nirvana. Eleven, Purple Stone Temple Pilots. 12. How to Make Friends and Influence People, Terrorvision. 13. The Downward Spiral, Nine Inch Nails. 14. The Holy Bible, Manic Street Preachers. 15. Dookie, Green Day. 16. Demolition 23, Demolition 23. 17. Divine Intervention Slayer. 18. Scratch the Surface, Sick of It All. 19. Ill Communication, The Beastie Boys. 20. Hints, Allegations and Things Left Unsaid, Collective Soul. 21. Vitology, Pearl Jam. 22. Ungod, Stabbing Westward. 23, La Mano Carnunda, Super Suckers. 24, Deliverance, Corrosion of Conformity. And 25, Walk On by Boston. And the final chart for 1994. Number one album is Crossroads, The Best of Bon Jovi. Number one in the top 20 indie LPs is Rock Anthems by Various. And number one in the singles chart is Please Come Home for Christmas by Bon Jovi. The reader's chart this week is Dickie Death from Burton. His chart is number one, Killed by Death, Motorhead, Two, Trainer Consequences, Megadeth, Three, Walk Pantera, Four, Flight of Icarus, Iron Maiden, Five, Angel of Death, Slayer, Six, High Rise, Hawkwind, Seven, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Nirvana, Eight, Restless and Wild Accept, Nine, Paranoid, Black Sabbath, and Ten, Enter Sandman, Metallica. And the Star Tracks this week comes from Jet, aka Diane Udell from The Gladiators. Her tracks are number one, November Rain, Guns N' Roses. Two, A Trick of the Tail, Camel. Three, Eat the Rich, Aerosmith. Four, Syrinx by Debussy. And five, Dan Reed Network by Dan Reed Network. In next year's copy of Kerrang! On sale January the 4th, Bon Jovi. More from the Big Kerrang! exclusive, John on 1995. The end is nigh. Mustaine predicts the end of the world. Exclusive. On the road in South America, the almighty's Ricky Warwick interviews Megadeth's Dave Mustaine exclusively for Kerrang. It's a no-holds-barred star-to-star event. Plus, the A to Z of metal. News for 95. Over 200 bands reveal their future plans. Sick of it all, US hardcore hits the UK. Plus, Manic Street Preachers, Cannibal Corpse, Testament and Big Chief. So that concludes this week's issue of 
Crane Back Issues, and that also concludes this year's load of podcasts. I've absolutely loved doing it this year, so thank you so much if you've ever listened. I mean, obviously you're listening to this now, so you won't have heard this otherwise, but I really do appreciate it. It's, it's been a lot of fun for me. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Um, yeah, we'll be back next year um, and with the same old stuff. And I am... I have ideas. I have some things I want to do with this podcast next year. We'll see if they come to fruition. Um, but expect, you know, a lot more of the same. Same old stuff. <laughs> Reading out whatever crap Crane decides to put in their magazine that week. Um, have great Christmases, everyone. And um, great New Year's. And look after yourselves. Stay safe out there because I know it doesn't feel very safe at the moment. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll be back next year. So talk to you all then. Bye for now. Let me sleep, it's Christmas time